The Power of Names It's an old childhood expression. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Perhaps you've said it a thousand times. In my work with abused and troubled children, I have had many occasions to reconsider its truth. Names are powerful. They can uplift or they can destroy. The names that we call one another can confer dignity upon a person or they can diminish that person and bring them to tears. Our names are given to us at the time of our baptism. A name speaks to the profound dignity that God gives to each of us as his own children. There are examples throughout salvation history when our relationship with God intensified and he gave one of us a new name. Sarai became Sarah. Simon became Peter. Jacob became Israel. My name is Israel. So began one of our young men as he told his story to 900 guests at a luncheon fundraiser for our education programs. Like names, our stories are a part of who we are. They help anchor us in our own identity and contribute to our understanding of ourselves. Just like names, our stories don't define us entirely, yet they play a critical role in shaping the individuals that we become. One of the most important things we do for our young people at Mercy Home is to help them take control of their future by embracing their personal histories. It is a deeply therapeutic act to share one's story with others. Most of our young people share their stories only with our counselors and therapists in the privacy of our home. Some of our young people, like Israel, are given the opportunity to testify to their struggles and triumphs to larger audiences. When they do, they speak not only for themselves, but also on behalf of their peers. They champion the cause of all children, those living at Mercy Home and those who struggle in our neighborhoods. This is another reason that we share the stories of some of our young people. You see, there will always be far more hurting, wounded children in the world than Mercy Home can ever hope to save. Yet what your generosity helps us to do for our children is an inspiration and an example to others. There is a popular writer who is intimately familiar with our work by the name of Alex Kotlowitz. His most famous book was made into a movie for network television called There Are No Children Here. It follows the lives of two children living in a dangerous public housing project that was located just a short distance down the street from our home. One of the things that Katlowitz discovered while researching his book was that there is a threat these young people in these environments face that is every bit as lethal as the drugs, gangs, violence, family dysfunction, and the poverty that surrounds them. This threat is the result of those experiences, and it comes from within each child. It is what Kotlowitz calls a self-imposed silence, or an unwillingness of these people living in the community to share their stories. He attributes this unwillingness to fear, a fear born of painful experience. It's these children's fear that if they share their stories, they won't be believed. This fear and this silence, he concludes, would strangle the spirit of an otherwise spirited people. 
This fear of sharing these stories also reflected on the rest of us. It told Kotlowitz that too many of us have simply stopped listening and stopped believing. Kotlowitz said, listening and believing is Mercy Holmes' legacy. We see in children born to such circumstances the dignity and promise inherent in each one. Kotlowitz said that Mercy Home bears witness and forces the rest of us to bear witness as well. Israel stood there bravely at the podium that afternoon. He reached out directly to the hearts of those gathered, and he bore powerful witness. After introducing himself as Israel, he explained that his birth mother had actually given him a different name, Andre. While he was still an infant, he was adopted by a very pious woman who renamed him Israel, with whom God formed an everlasting covenant to bless him with descendants who would lead the 12 tribes. He joked, obviously my mom had big plans for me. If you met this solidly built young man today, you might find it hard to believe that he was once the target of merciless bullying. Also, if you had the privilege of being in his warm and welcoming presence, seeing his contagious smile, you would never imagine that he was once withdrawn and reclusive. Throughout his early childhood, Israel had been, by nature, fun-loving, intelligent, confident, and outgoing. But in his middle school years, he began to hit roadblocks. Adolescence is challenging for all children particularly as it is a time when they struggle most with who they are and with their identity. It can be a fragile time for a child, especially one as sensitive and reflective as Israel. He became quiet and withdrawn, and his schoolmates taunted him daily. As the abuse from his peers increased, he grew angry and defensive. He got into fights at school, and his grades suffered. But there was something even worse on the horizon. Gang violence soon engulfed his neighborhood. As I said, adolescence is difficult for all kids. But for those growing up in some communities in Chicago and in troubled communities across the country, it can also be very dangerous. Israel's world was now a battleground. The violence that the gangs brought with them soon spilled into his elementary school. Imagine trying to learn every day under the ever-present threat of harm. One afternoon, that threat became a brutal reality. Israel was just walking home, alone. A group of young gang members, including some older teens and even adults, descended upon him. They beat him horribly jumping up and down on him, repeatedly kicking him in the face. Israel had no allegiance or affiliations with any gang, but it didn't matter. It was simply his turn to be victimized. The attack left him with a broken jaw and scars that are visible to this day. Less visible, but more damaging, were the psychological scars. Already mistrusting of those at his school who had demeaned him, he now had to sit in class with some of the very people who participated in his assault. Their presence at his school was a constant reminder of that terrible day. His guard was always up, and so was his anger. 
his neighborhood continued to deteriorate. Childhood friends were now doing drugs, going to jail, dying by gunfire, or killing others. Children killing children. And there was Israel, struggling to grow up among the murderers. Being a child and enjoying everyday things became secondary to his survival. So did Israel's education. One can be forgiven for assuming that Israel might have been motivated to work extra hard in school to make something of himself and get out of that unhealthy environment for good. Fortunately or unfortunately, as humans, we are hardwired to choose self-preservation first. That became the primary focus of each one of Israel's days. Doing well in school and planning for the future took a back seat to remaining vigilant against threats. He went on to high school, but only completed his freshman year. Fearing everything and trusting no one, Israel dropped out. Life inside his home became combative as well. Already fighting with his mother over his grades and, ultimately, his decision to leave school, a new front opened in their ever-widening rift. This one was over religion. While he was tolerant of his mother's deeply held religious convictions, Israel began to question faith openly. And like many kids his age, he was searching for answers about himself. This was more than his mother could accept, and she told him that she should not have given him such an honorable name like Israel. Rather, she said, she should have named him Satan. At the beginning of their relationship, with nothing but hope and promise, stretching out as far into the future as she could see, she had given him a name. It was out of love for the infant that she had rescued, out of her big plans for his future that she named him Israel, a name that aspired to greatness on par with one of God's chosen, a name that matched the potential she could feel within him, even before he could share his own thoughts through words. Now with their bond in tatters, his mother gave him a new name, a hurtful name. Her house should have been a refuge from the dangers of the world outside, but the war had come home. He began to wonder whether everyone would be better off if he left altogether. He wondered whether his life would have been better had he had never been adopted and he had remained Andre. The family sought counseling, but it failed to mend the broken trust between mother and son. Then Grace intervened. The therapist knew about Mercy Home and encouraged Israel and his mother to call. Israel was desperate enough to take a chance on us and entered our full-time care at the age of 15. Like most children who have experienced trauma, he was leery of the many strangers who seemed so eager to provide encouragement and support at every turn. When our kids suddenly have adults in their lives who truly care, it takes some getting used to. It doesn't happen right away that they feel that they can put their guard down. My co-workers persisted. They did the things that they do best. They were present and they were patient. They listened and they believed. Slowly, the fortress walls that surrounded this young man, shielding him from both pain and joy alike, began to crumble. He learned how to trust again. 
He learned how to let go of his anger. And through his determination and hard work, the outgoing, confident soul from his childhood reemerged. His relationship with peers and with his family improved dramatically. While we worked with Israel on his emotional development, we helped him plan for a self-sustaining future. We enrolled him in a GED program and encouraged him to discover his talents and interests. Leveraging our kids' passions and abilities is a critical component in helping them build success. We refer to this as our strengths-based approach to childcare. Israel had an interest in computers, so after he passed his GED, he began a college-accredited technology program here in Chicago. It is one of our many partner organizations that help us provide opportunities for our young people to succeed. Israel, the former high school dropout, completed the program with a 3.5 grade point average. His experience and hard work led him to an internship at a Fortune 100 company. And as I write this, he is attending college while working full-time. He may not have believed it himself when he was younger, but today it's obvious to anyone that Israel is a smart, gifted young man. He is also incredibly hardworking. Now that he enjoys the safety and the support that you help us give to him, he is driven to make a better life for himself and for the family he hopes to have one day. I often see Israel very early in the morning, managing the youth-run coffee shop that's located within our home. He mentors the younger kids who work at the shop. For most, it is their very first experience of having a job and a boss. Israel greets every passerby with an enthusiastic wave and a baritone voice that reverberates through the hallways. What has become especially inspiring is the way he calls everyone by their name. Everyone. His capacity to remember so many names is truly impressive. I believe it comes from the importance that he places on names. That afternoon, I watched Israel share the details of his life's journey with the luncheon audience. Like each of the 900 guests in the room that day, I hung on every word. From his vantage point, elevated on a stage, looking out over a sea of admirers, he observed how far he had come from his troubled old neighborhood. He reflected on how he used to believe that he was going to end up another grim statistic from Chicago Street Wars, how he feared that he'd never have a chance to become who he was destined to be. Now, there he stood, confident, strong a leader. Glad to be who he is. Glad to be Israel.